I invite you to take out your Bibles and open to the book of Genesis in chapter 3. We've been going through a study in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and today we finish up chapter 3. Next week, actually the next two weeks, we're going to continue the series, but a little different take, and I'll Next week, we're going, to tra- we're going to trace the promise that we're going to see today of Messiah from Genesis 3 to Jesus. And then the next week, we're going to look at the parallels between Genesis 1 through 3 and the end of Revelation and see how, how God, as the great author of human history, has written a great introduction with a great conclusion. He he uh, finishes a story, and uh, since we're close to Christmas, I'll say he puts a bow on it, as it were. Uh, so that's the next couple of weeks. But today we're at the end of chapter 3. And again, uh, just by way of review, chapter 3 begins with the entrance of sin into the world. As you recall, Eve was tempted by the serpent, that Satan, and she took of the of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God had said, do not eat. And she took some and ate it and gave to Adam who was there, and he ate, and sin came into the world. And we saw last week four consequences of their sin that were immediately exposed. There was guilt and there was shame as they realized they were naked, exposed as guilty and evil. There was brokenness in their relationship with one another and there was alienation from God. Today, as we come to the end of chapter 3, we find more consequences of their sin as God pronounces judgments and some curses because of their sin. And I've called this message, I've entitled it Grace, which probably seems like a strange name for a message on verses that have to do with curses and judgments. There was once a sign on on the wall of a convent, on the gate of a convent, and it said, No trespassing. Trespassers will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. At the bottom it was signed, Sisters of Mercy. We laugh at that because it seems contradictory. But there are many people who wrestle with confusion like that as they try to put together God's grace and God's judgment. Some people wrongly believe that God is just a kindly old grandfather who just is all love and he just, you know, kind of, oh, it's okay, son, you know. Boys will be boys, girls will be girls, humans will be humans, it's all right, it's not a big deal, and God is just all loving. Others view God as just a God of, a vindictive God of judgment and wrath. Some people wrongly believe that in the Old Testament, God is shown as a God of wrath. And in the New Testament, God is shown as a God of mercy. 
But that is not the truth. God is perfectly holy and just. And throughout the Scriptures we see that God's justice demands that sin may not be, it cannot be overlooked, it must be dealt with. The Scripture is also clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is primarily described as the God of grace, the God of mercy and loving kindness. Both are equally true. And so it really shouldn't surprise us that as we come here in Genesis 3, even as God addresses and judges man's sin, that when we look carefully, we also discover that God's grace flows dramatically and beautifully like a river through this chapter. There is so much in these few verses and uh, this morning, just in the limited time we have, I want to call our attention to five ways in which God's grace shows up in the midst of His judgments. Here in, we're picking it up in verse 14 and through the, uh, through the end of this chapter. Let's follow along as I read a few verses here beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. By the way, in this passage, as God describes these judgments and curses, he first addresses the serpent, then he addresses the woman, and then he addresses the man. But I want us to note again God's grace here. And you say, where is God's grace in this? Didn't read anything about God's grace in those two verses. But God's grace shows up amidst this enmity that he describes And the way it shows up is that God declares a war. He doesn't just say that enmity will exist, but He says, if you'll note carefully, it says, I will put it there. Why do I call this grace? It's because God does not simply concede defeat regarding humanity. God doesn't say, oh, bummer. Wasn't expecting that. Okay, scrap the whole thing, throw it away. No. God does not allow Satan here to declare victory, nor to destroy humanity. Because as we know, God knew before anything ever was created, God knew what would happen. What God does, He declares a war. A war which will occur on three fronts. We see here, God says that it will be a war 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between Satan and this woman. It is not, by the way, just a cute story to to say that you know this is why women hate snakes. You know, none of these chapters here, Genesis one, two, and three, they are not fable. They are not myth. They are not legend. Just nice stories at the beginning of the Bible, which we can dismiss. They are the foundational chapters of the Scripture upon which all the rest of the Scripture is built. It is built upon the fact that God is Creator of everything, that He formed everything. He spoke the world into existence, the universe into existence. He spoke life into existence. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. It is not just a myth here as He describes the temptation and the fall of mankind. And when God says, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, it's not about that women hate snakes. The point is simply this. Satan hasn't won with Adam and Eve. He deceived Eve. He tricked her. She sinned. But he won't have Eve as a willing ally anymore. He hasn't fully won her over, is the point. You got me now, but you won't get me again, you see, is Eve's heart. That's what God is saying here. Secondly, He says there's not only a war then between between Eve and Satan, there is war, it says, between His offspring and her offspring. The rest of Scripture, as well as human history, bears out the fact that there is a battle between Satan's seed, those who align with him, and Eve's seed, in this case representing those who are the people of God, those who align themselves with God. We see Jesus describe this, for example, in John chapter 8 and verse 44 where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And He says to them, He says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He says that there exists on earth those who are aligned with Satan, who are his seed, those who do his bidding. In fact, the Bible tells us that that is the natural condition of everyone who is born. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners and that we are, Romans, you can go to the book of Romans, Romans 5, and realize that it says that not only, you know, it's not that we are neutral in this. It's not that we are born naturally on God's side. We are born, it says, as enemies of God. That's the natural condition of man. Satan has a seed, but he also But God has also His people. God has always had a people. He always does. He has His seed. There is a battle going on. It is not insignificant that you will see that that throughout history, the people who have been most oppressed and most attacked are those who align themselves with God because the world system under Satan attacks God's people. And so the Jews, who are God's people, 
chosen people in the Old Testament, even still today, have a relationship of, uh, with God as a wayward people, but a people that God is going to call back one day. As we look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, even today they are among the most persecuted people in the world. I was just listening to the other this week on statistics on persecuted peoples in the world and it is not insignificant that 80% of the people persecuted in this world because of their faith are Christians because Satan hates God's people. There's a war. But thirdly, there's a war here declared, it says, between the seed of a woman and Satan personally. It goes on to very personal terms. He, the seed of the woman, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, by the way, is what this verse is what the, the theologians call the Proto-Evangelium, which is a big fancy $10 theological word for the first gospel. Because here in those few words is the first promise that God is going to send one who is the seed of the woman who is going to be the one who will defeat the enemy, who will rescue mankind from the one who has murdered mankind, Satan. There's a war. That is God's grace. He has put a war between Eve and Satan, between Satan's seed and her seed, and between Satan himself and her seed personally, which we know now is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But not only has God declared a war, Satan will be defeated. He is a defeated enemy. It is mentioned here, God promises it. It hasn't happened at this time in chapter 3. It won't happen for some time. But God has promised it and so it is assured. Satan will be defeated and he will be defeated by, as the promise says here, by the seed. It says that Satan here will bruise his heel, the heel of the seed, but he, the seed, will bruise the serpent's head. It's not the bruising here isn't just a, a flesh wound. It's not a little, little bump on the head. It's the crushing of the head that the seed of the woman will destroy Satan. That's the point. Satan will be defeated and he will be defeated by the seed. The seed will triumph. There is God's grace here in the war. There will be a war. Satan will be defeated and the seed of the woman is the one who will triumph. We know that the seed is Jesus. We know that Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. There at the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan's one great destructive weapon. You say, what was that? And it was Satan's ability to stand before God and accuse us and say they are guilty and they should perish with Me. And at the cross, Jesus paid for our sins so that anyone who believes in Him will 
not perish. That's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that's Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The seed of the woman who is Jesus has already triumphed over sin and over death. The ultimate realization of the victory will happen when Jesus Christ returns, when Satan is bound and Satan ultimately is judged, thrown into the lake of fire. And finally, we will see, we will witness the final outworking. But the fact is, from this very moment, when sin enters into the world, and here in God's words in chapter 3, from that moment, Satan was defeated. Because you see, it's not, while it is a war, it is not a contest. Satan is not even in any way an equal to God. I love is the way the old hymn, uh, A Mighty Fortress, puts it, because it's what the Scripture says. It says, one little word will fell him, will fell Satan. All it takes is the word from God. He is done. He is allowed to keep moving at this point because it is all part of God's story and God's plan. But He is a defeated enemy. God's grace shows up in punishment. Verse 16. As He turns from Satan to the man and to the woman, God says in verse 16 to the woman, He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Two things here, pain and sorrow in childbirth. Undoubtedly, this implies that the process and the pains of giving birth are significantly greater now than they were before sin. But it's interesting that the word translated here, actually there's two words in the Hebrew uh, in this verse, translated pain, can each mean more than physical pain. I think the New King James, the King James and the New King James both translate this well. When it says this, it says, in, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children. In other words, what sin brings to childbirth is more than just the pains of labor, but it is the challenges, all the challenges and the sorrows of everything that is involved in the bearing and the raising of children in a sinful and a broken and a fallen and a dangerous world. You see, because of sin, now there are sorrows of desired pregnancies which are never realized. There are the sorrows of babies and mothers who did not survive childbirth. There are the sorrows of children who die young. The, the pain and anguish of parents as they try to protect those young children in a dangerous world and you realize just how much danger there is at every turn that you never noticed before they were born. There's the sorrows of children 
who are diseased, who are infirmed, who are disabled, who get injured and hurt. There's the sorrows and pain of having adolescent children and young people who you watch make foolish or rebellious decisions that you know will have horrible consequences. There's the sorrow and pain even of having adult children. As you still, moms, you know especially, because it seems moms especially are aware of all of this, as you are concerned for your adult children. There's sorrow of adult children who bring shame upon themselves and their families. We could go on, can't we? How quickly this sorrow became apparent to Adam and Eve. As one day they stood beside the grave of their second-born son who had been murdered by their first-born son. There are physical dangers. There are spiritual dangers. And I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children. That is a result of sin in the world. Secondly, we don't have time to really dig into this verse, but it moves into the marriage relationship as it says to the, to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. We looked at it last week, but basically I think this is saying that it's speaking of disharmony in the marriage as what God has intended to be a, a partnership turns into a battle of the sexes. God moves and turns from the woman to the man in verse 17. And to Adam He said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. He says the... Ground is cursed. Not just the ground, but actually as, you, as we see, for example, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 20 and 21, it speaks really of all of creation being in bondage under the curse of sin's corruption. Because of that, labor or work is going to be difficult. There will be difficult labor needed for survival. The creation will no longer cooperate with man. Every struggle that you and I have with weeds and mosquitoes and disease and natural disasters and on and on, every bit of that traces its origins here to this curse. From now on, getting just simply getting food to survive requires hard work. As we noted a few weeks ago, when God created Adam and Eve, we noted that there was work before the fall. But it wasn't, that work was not laborious, nor was it frustrating, nor was it a matter of life and death, but rather the work originally before sin was a matter of privileged service, something that was an honor to do. We look at all this and we say, wow, this is bad. Where we ended up is bad. 
Where is God's grace in all of this? And that's a very good question. I personally find a lot of joy in reclaiming broken things. In taking things that are broken and looking at it and try to find a way to fix it. To put it back together. Matter of fact, when we were young, that was mostly the way we furnished our house. It was the stuff we found and somebody discarded. You know, it was on bulky trash pickup day. We ran down the street and go, oh, I can fix that. You know, you take it home and you screw this together and glue that there and you do this and slap a coat of paint on it and you got a brand new piece of furniture. Well, at least to us. And I've discovered as I read Scripture that I think God has that heart as well. Because that's what He does with us. If you remember back to the end of chapter 1 when God created Adam and Eve and He gave them work, as I mentioned a moment ago, He gave them a mission. He gave them a purpose. Remember what He said? He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. He put them, that was their task, as rulers over the earth. What God was doing was giving them an extension of His creative work. He was now putting them in charge of His creation to carry on His creative process. Fill the earth with children, with people, and harness the earth. Make stuff. Be productive. Create things. Out of the the world that I've put you in, make beautiful things. That was the mandate, the mission. And if you'll notice, the consequences here to the woman and the man relate to those two primary jobs. Having children and work. Again, where is God's grace in that? Because God in that has given to people a restored purpose. Here is God's grace seen in that while now it will be much more difficult, God is still sending them on in His mission. They are still to be fruitful and multiply. They are still to fill the earth and to harness it and make things, be productive. Instead of God giving up on them, Instead of God starting over with a different race of creatures, God chooses to redeem these broken humans and to work through them. And it's a major theme all the way through Scripture. How God is merciful and forgiving and loves to take broken people and restore them and use them. Isn't that marvelous? Just one example right here. Eve, who ate first. Eve was the one who who started this mess by listening to the serpent and she ate and gave it to Adam. And yet God says, you will be the one through whom the seed comes who defeats Satan. Thirdly, God's grace shows up in verses 19 and 20 amidst death. As we finish verse 19, He says, By sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. 
God had promised them that if they ate of the fruit of that forbidden tree, that they would die. And indeed now God says, death will come. You will die. You will return to dust, He says. Where's the grace here? Well, two things. First of all, they didn't die on the spot. Death was delayed. God could have sent death right at that instant, squashed them like bugs. But in fact, Adam lives for 930 years. That's a good little while. Through them, God populates the world. They didn't die on the spot. And you may not see it here, but in the midst of this, God provides a hope. It's interesting to notice that if you go back to the text, we've talked about Adam and Eve, but actually if you read carefully, Adam is named earlier in this in these chapters, but Eve has not been. Until this point, she has not had a name. Her name has simply been the woman. Which, by the way, guys, I don't suggest that you go home and call your wife that. Most women I know don't like being called the woman. But Eve was till this point. And now Adam names his wife. Now you might expect that at this point if he's going to name his wife after all this trouble, he might call her gullible because she believed the serpent. Or he might call her, you know, spoiler, troublemaker, lady of death. You know, or something. But instead, he names her Eve, which is Hebrew for living or life giver. See, what Adam is doing here is demonstrating faith in the promise that God just gave shortly before. That the seed of the woman is going to be the one who defeats Satan And who is going to be the one who rescues mankind from death and brings life. What he has just done is put his faith in God's promise. That is how people were saved then. It's how people are still saved today. In their day and time, they were looking forward to God's promise. We now look back at God's God sent His Son to be our Savior. Fourthly, God's grace shows up in verse 21 amidst their nakedness. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God met their practical need for clothing. But more than that, He met their need for covering. We saw last week that their nakedness extended far beyond just the fact that physically they didn't have clothes. Their nakedness was that they were fully exposed as being corrupted and being having evil in them. That's where the real shame came in. God provides for them here clothing, but God's provision goes beyond the need for clothes. There are four truths here that are in seed form in this little picture that are developed throughout the pages of Scripture and expounded through the Scripture. And let me give them for you, but this, this fact of God making clothing for them 
is a picture of, first of all, that our sin is a real problem. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be covered. Secondly, that our efforts at covering our sin, at covering ourselves, are inadequate. Just as their efforts physically of covering themselves physically with fig leaves were a major wardrobe failure. Wasn't effective. Thirdly, the realization that only God can provide the covering we need as God provided the covering they needed. Fourthly, the covering God provided for them required the death of an innocent substitute. And the covering for our sin requires a death. It either requires our death or requires the death of an innocent substitute. I imagine this was actually a horrific thing for Adam and Eve as they are there and God provides covering, but He does it with skins and the only way to get animal skins is to kill animals. And I think God probably did that right before them, that they witnessed that, which would have been shocking because at this point they had never seen death. And very suddenly and very graphically, the reality of the awfulness of their sin and the consequences of sin begins to sink in. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The covering of our sin requires a bloody death. But that's exactly why we celebrate Christmas because that's why Jesus came. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 10, verse 45, He says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. God's grace shows up by declaring war. God's grace shows up in their punishment. He shows up in their death. He shows up, His grace shows up in their nakedness. God's grace lastly shows up in verse 22 in their banishment. Verses 22 to 24. And the Lord God said, the man, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Ever since people have died, people have longed for, they have hoped for, and desperately sought for some drug, some potion, some water, something that will keep man alive and youthful. So the legend of Ponce de Leon coming to America seeking the fountain of youth in Florida been the theme, the plot of countless stories and movies. Here, the Bible tells us there actually is a tree that gives life. And when we think about that, maybe it's kind of shocking and a little concerning. What's man's problem? Because of sin, we will die. And here's the tree that gives life. And what does God do? He banishes man from it. Hides it. So we can't access it. We say, wait a minute. 
Where's God's grace in that, Pastor? Matter of fact, that doesn't just sound like not that God not giving grace. It sounds like maybe Satan was right. Satan says God doesn't want you to become like him. No good and evil. And so you ate the fruit and now you know good and evil and now God is holding out on you. He's vindictive. Of course, that's not true. You see, man's sin did change one thing and in one little way made man like God. That now God says man has become like us knowing good and evil. In a little way. But as we talked last week, We don't know evil the same way God knows evil. You see, God is all good and there is no impurity, no corruption, no evil in Him. He knows what evil is. But it has not tainted Him at all. We, on the other hand, know evil as those who have been corrupted by it. We are evil. You see, it's rather the difference between how a cancer patient knows cancer and how a cancer surgeon knows cancer. So where is God's grace here? It's simply in this. God is not holding out on us. He he is holding back for us. You see, if we would live forever in our present condition, that would not be a good thing. It would not be a blessing. It would be a curse. We would live forever as sinful people experiencing continually the consequences of sinful actions. We would be bound in flawed bodies in a world of disease and decay. And worst of all, we would be living forever still alienated from God. You see, because when sin came and into this world, when sin infected us, we die and we die in two ways. We die physically, which is the separation of the inner man, the inward part of us, the soul, the spirit, from the physical part of man, the body. That's physical death. There is also another death the Bible describes, which is a spiritual death. And that is the separation of man from his Creator. It is the break in relationship between us and the One who made us which is what we were designed for, we talked about weeks ago. We were designed for relationship with Him. To live forever in this body, in this world, alienated from God would be, in some small measure, hell on earth. Actually, in some big measure, hell on earth. But I don't want to diminish what hell is either. God God desires better for us. And God has provided for us a better future. He desires that we be transformed inside and out to be perfect and holy, to live in a new heaven, in a new earth, a perfect environment where there is no death, no disease, no curse, and to enjoy Him and fellowship with Him forever. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks when we compare Genesis 1 to 3 to the end of the book, Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22, what we discover there is that is exactly what God describes as the destiny for all who trust in Jesus. Perfect 
bodies in a perfect environment in fellowship with God forever and ever. And interestingly enough, the tree of life shows up there again in Revelation 22, available to us. I'm not a fan of pain, just for the record. But pain is a gift. Pain tells us that something is wrong, so that when you hit your finger with a hammer, your finger goes, Ouch! Don't do that anymore! It's bad! Pain tells us that you are injured. Stop using your knee. Go to the doctor. You are injured. Something's wrong. Living in this sin-cursed world, God has designed that the very curses and the problems in this world are to serve like pain to the body. And it's a signal and to cry out to us to say, something is wrong. Something is sick. And to drive us to the only place where there is a remedy. And that is the grace of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you're here this morning you have yet to trust in Jesus as your Savior, God pleads for you to do that today. The Bible says it is His desire that no one should perish but that all should come to repentance to trust Jesus and to experience the grace that He gives eternal life. For all of us who this morning are here and we're trusting in Jesus, my hope and my prayer is that this look today at God's grace will simply move us to put 2 Corinthians 5.15 into practice. It says, And He died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Father, we thank You for Your grace. Showing up and meeting us in our very point of need. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There was nothing we could do to rescue ourselves, but You sent Jesus to rescue us. Thank You. Now may we, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, Father, may we live for Him. In whatever days we have to give us, that we have to live until He returns, and when we enter into the realization of all the restoration and the ultimate redemption that has been promised, until that time, may we live for Jesus. For His glory and in His name we ask.